This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, this time we will get into the preaching of God's Word. If you have a Bible with you, you've got a Bible at home, open it to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah is one of the prophets. I'll talk about prophets in a minute. Chapter 30 is about two-thirds of the way, a little, little less than that, uh, or a little, little bit more than that through the book. And so uh, find Jeremiah chapter 30. And would you join me in a word of prayer? God, may your name be praised and you held up as great. You are a wonderful God. You abound in steadfast love. You have promised to never leave or forsake. And so, Father, we pray in this time that you would teach us about a new and better way, a promise that you have made you have kept and that will stand for all time. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We are covering a lot of historical ground today. Last week, we worked through both uh, a psalm and then we worked uh, through kind of a way of reading wisdom literature in the Bible uh, that helps us to get nearer to the mind and the heart of Jesus. And the way we did that is we read a psalm, and then we looked at a time that Jesus referenced the ideas, the, the, the heart of that psalm, as he talked to a, a woman and talked to her about the topic of worship. And today we are in Jeremiah, book written and containing the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, and the Bible study skill that we're pairing with it this morning. This is our series, Equipped. We have Bible study skills compared with the big movements of God, and we are looking at the word context, the important aspects that surround what we're reading and inform our reading of the Bible. We're looking at context in two ways. Literary context refers to the surrounding writing Think paragraphs, chapters, that sort of thing. And then we're looking at the historical context, which refers to the circumstances the letter was written in. When was it written? To whom was it written? In what region were the inhabitants, the receptors of what's being written? Context is critical to Bible reading, but it's also key to a lot of life. If the doctor walks into the room with an x-ray in his or her hand and says, you have the heart of a 50-year-old, if you're 35, that's good news. If you're 65, not so much. Context is key. Uh, I could tell you that yesterday morning while I ate breakfast, I read two books. The context that those books were picked out by my, two year, but by my three-year-old and not one of them was more than 10 or 12 pages makes it seem a little bit less impressive that I read two books over breakfast yesterday. So my oldest daughter reads a lot faster than I do. She's 10. She's read all the way through the Harry Potter series twice. She's on her third go through the Chronicles of Narnia right now. And one feature that I really like about both of those book series is that they expand the reader's vocabularies. 
But they don't do it by just saying, here's a new word and here's what it means. They use, the authors use the literary context. In other words, they introduce a word in the flow of a sentence, and in the following sentence, they'll use and reuse that word to help readers expand their vocabulary. That's literary context. So we're going to talk about the historical context of Jeremiah. We're going to talk about the literary context of Jeremiah and where we are in that book this morning. But before we do that, let's get oriented into the Bible story, the biggest story of the Bible. So if you just kind of hold your Bible in your hands, you'll notice, or, or open to the table of contents might even be an easier way to do this, the, the first third of the Bible is laid out fairly chronologically. Genesis is at the beginning, and after the events of Genesis, you get the events of Exodus, and then that's followed by Numbers. Now, chronologically, Leviticus falls kind of within the time frame of Exodus, and Deuteronomy comes at the end of Numbers, but they're all right there kind of as the Bible story begins and gets established. After Deuteronomy, in the, book of, in, in the Bible order, you've got Joshua and Judges, those come chronologically, and then you've got the books of Samuel, and you've got the books that are about the kings. Last in the chronology, First and Second Chronicles sort of um, highlight some of the things in Samuel and Kings. Last in the chronology, you've got Ezra and Nehemiah. So as far as the, Old Test- the chronology of the Old Testament goes, Nehemiah is the last sort of historical book that we have. The problem is we've already long passed Nehemiah, but we're still sort of in the middle of the story because it's not laid out chronologically all the time. The Old Testament is primarily arranged in three parts. You've got the the history, the first several books that I just mentioned. Then you've got the wisdom literature. We did that last week a little bit. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is another book that you might recognize there. And then you have the prophets. And here's where this bothers me. It just bothers me. It's a little disorienting, and, I, and ultimately, I don't think it's helpful. I've kind of had to learn to live with this. I'm not going to be able to fight the order of the Bible. I understand that. So where we are now, this morning, we're studying Jeremiah. It's a section that Jewish people call the writings, that Christians often call the prophets. And don't, they don't come in chronological order for the most part either. They're arranged oftentimes by length. So the longer ones come first. In other words, the guys who were more verbose, spoke more, write, writ, wrote more, they, came, they come first, and then the prophets who were a little bit more succinct come second, come after that. So the prophets are already hard enough. The names are strange to us. We don't use them a lot. Uh, they're hard to pronounce. They have a lot of syllables in them. Letter combinations that we don't use. And then they also don't come in in any kind of order that's often very helpful to us. But do not fear, do not dismay. I am here to help you this morning and I want to help you with this. So I want to kind of orient us in the story of Scripture because otherwise uh, we might not be able to see where we're at. So where we left off the story of Scripture uh, a couple of weeks ago was with David. David is the model king of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that David was perfect or that he was even the best man, and it certainly doesn't mean that he wasn't significantly flawed. 
What David was and what does describe him is he was open to God. He was repentant when he sinned. And David really did want to lead the people to glorify God. And that provides us with something of a model as well. God is omniscient and he's omnipresent. Means he knows everything and he's everywhere, which means he knows, folks, that he's not getting perfection from you. He already knows that. He doesn't even ask you for that. We learn this from David's life. He anticipates our shortcomings, and instead of being disappointed in those, he gives us his own perfection. He does that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, so that now God's invitation to us is not be perfect and live forever with me. It's believe in my perfection so that you might live forever with me. When we believe that Jesus is the sinless son of God, that he defeated death, that he was raised to life, we receive the grace of God and the gift of eternal life. David wasn't perfect, but he had a heart for God. His faith was in God, and God, through him, made a promise for a better way. The promise that God made David was that someone from David's line, from his ancestry, would sit on the throne as king forever. Now, historically, what we know, so we'll find ourselves in Jeremiah in a minute, is that the line of David didn't last very long on the throne in this nation, for this nation. The throne didn't last very long. So after David comes his son Solomon, and Solomon starts out as king pretty well, but he quickly becomes greedy and proud and he begins a a, a descent into ungodliness, and so the nation descends away from the Lord with him. And so when Solomon dies, the nation is thrown into turmoil. It first splits in two, so northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. I could tell you a little bit more about that, but I I think that might be just more helpful right now if we just kind of concentrate on what we're supposed to learn from that. So there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and there are a string of mostly bad, ungodly kings. A couple of good ones mixed in for one of the kingdoms, but for the most part, kings who lead the people astray from the worship of God. And so let me just tell you three things that we are hoping that we're supposed to learn from the line of the kings. That's kind of what we're skipping over. First, we are regularly reminded that God's people do best when they follow God and not man. One of the two kingdoms is an absolute and utter disaster from the jump. Its kings are selfish and they're pagan and they are overtaken by a warring nation very, very quickly. Now, the other kingdom 
had a, a few better kings, mostly worse ones, but a few better ones, and so they survived longer. They made it longer. When the kings exalt God, the nation often prospers, and when they reject him and then chase other gods, the nation suffers. That's the pattern that we see. Eventually, both kingdoms fall to foreign nations, and we're told by the prophets that God uses to rise up and speak that it's God's intention to use these foreign nations to both warn and to punish, but also they do bring messages of hope that one day God will restore the nation and be bless the people once again. So that leads us to the second and third things we learn from the period of the kings, the fall of the nation. This is the second and third thing. The second thing is that holiness rather than worldly strength, is most valuable when God is seen as king. And that's what's supposed to happen in the nation, that God is seen as king. So holiness is more valuable than worldly strength when God's king. God will take care of the nation when they're holy. He leaves them to fend for themselves when they turn away from him. And the third thing is that God does not turn away forever. The New Testament book of Hebrews says that loving parents discipline their children so that they will grow in maturity. The period of the kings will ultimately be used for the maturity of the people of God. God does not leave them, but he does allow them to experience the consequences of their actions and their decisions. So the prophets primarily connect the word and the heart of God to the prospects along with the posture of the nation. Again, when they worship him and are for him, his glory, the nation seems to prosper. When they turn from him, the nation withers. So the prophets begin predicting ruin for the people of God and the nation. But they do not say that God will abandon the people. They show the people how God will teach them. One of the most repeated promises in the Bible is that God does not forsake. He does not leave. He does not say, I'm done with this people. If there was ever a people to forsake, it would have been the people of Israel. God shows them every power. God blesses them. He puts them in a prosperous nation. He grows them up, and it's barely a generation later before they want something else. But he says, I won't leave them. That's the message that God uses the prophets to bring. And we're studying the prophet Jeremiah this morning, who had a particularly difficult life and ministry. He was a prophet during probably the worst time in Israel's history. His ministry began when Jerusalem was still a fairly thriving city, and there was still a temple with at least some active worship. They built a temple in Jerusalem the people had at God's direction under Solomon. So Jeremiah begins his ministry in Jerusalem with the temple, but he saw both the temple and then the whole city of Jerusalem ransacked and destroyed. And the people who lived there he saw as inhabitants first of the city, and then he watched them and saw them be deported to another kingdom. So he saw the low point. 
He came to become a prophet shortly before that. He ministered through, and then he actually, he does get to bring words of hope toward the end. Most of what God called Jeremiah to say were words of judgment. But Jeremiah does get some of the best moments of any prophet. We're going to look at one of those best moments this morning. We're reading Jeremiah 30 and 31. In these verses, Jeremiah moves from prophet of judgment to prophet of salvation. We won't be able to read everything in the chapter, so let me just pick out a few verses, but we'll start at the beginning. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1. Let me read there. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of the people. Israel and Judah. So this is a promise for both kingdoms. Those are the names of the kingdoms. It's a promise for both kingdoms, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Remember, he's predicting ruin, he's predicting deportation and destruction, and now he's predicting return and possession. So the next section takes both what, what Jeremiah and other prophets have said about judgment conquest by other nations, exile of the people, but in a sense, it answers those prophecies of judgment with promises of salvation. So, for instance, the next few verses say there is a day of judgment coming. It's a popular phrase among the prophets, a day of judgment, but Jeremiah says there will now also be a day of deliverance. He uses metaphors of pain, but says there will come healing. He says that people will be taken captive, but one day they will be freed. You see all of these. Destruction, deliverance, wounds and healing, bondage and release, freedom. I want to point you to something in verse 9. Look at that verse. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Remember, Israel looks back to David as their greatest king, but this is something different. This was written something like 400 years after David's reign as king. Yet here, as the word of hope is delivered In the midst of great coming pain, Jeremiah says that God will raise up David, their king. This theme, this idea of of another king like David, keeps coming up in the prophets. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we make of a promise 400 years after David has already passed as king, that they're still talking about David coming as king This is why I want to do the study skills of historical and literary context when we're looking at the prophets. What do they help us understand while we read these sometimes obscure, sometimes historically distant parts of the Bible? And so here we know at least a few things, just doing some historical context. Chronologically, David is long gone. So this can't mean that God will make David king again. We know that's true from history. 
This is clearly a future promise. So it must mean at some point in the future, an heir, a king like David, will be back on the throne to reign over the people of God. We can do a little bit with a literary context here too. What else from these pages, then I want to bring in another prophet as well, what else from these verses can help us to see and learn about this new King David? In other words, what does the literary context teach us? The very next few verses here, right here, say that after a time, the city, which is symbolic even of the people of God, the people of God will return and they will rebuild the city. And the king who is like David will be with the people of God. And as we keep reading, we learn even a little bit more. The rest of chapter 30 and most of chapter 31 are promises about a great and glorious future. They take what is coming for destruction. They take even some of the things that the people have already seen, and they promise that better things are to come. They're really hopeful, and that's how the people of the Lord would have heard them. These are hopeful verses. In just a minute, I'm going to read the most hopeful ones, chapter 31, 31 to 34, verses 31 to 34. But before I do that, I just want to teach you really quickly about doing a little bit of context work in your Bible. So the number one thing to do context work in your Bible is you need to read a lot of your Bible. You need to read the Bible in big chunks. You can't read individual verses and get much out of them. You need to read whole paragraphs. You need to read whole chapters. You even need to read whole books of the Bible to see what it is that those individual verses are actually saying. So literary context, the number one tip I have for you is just read bigger chunks of the Bible. If you're unclear, read before and after. Read large portions of the scriptures. It's the only way to do literary context. Historical context, ask questions. Ask when was the book written? Get a a chronology going. Get a time frame going. Put it on a timeline. Ask where was it written? What what area of the world? What area, area of the ancient Near East? Ask questions like, what were the major dominant powers of the time? Ask questions like, who was king? Ask those types of questions. If you're wondering, well, how will I know about those things? Uh, The internet is a wonderful tool. But if you have a study Bible, and a study Bible can be found uh, online very easily. The NIV study Bible is great. The ESV study Bible is in, in, it's half a seminary education all by itself. Um... The NASB has a good study Bible. The uh, CSB has a new study Bible coming out. I think they're really helpful resources in the beginning of a study Bible. And a study Bible will have the Bible text with footnotes under it. Usually there'll be a three to four page introduction to every book of the Bible, and it will tell you much of the historical context, and it will help you with literary context because it will have things about the author and the date of writing, and the occasion of the writing, and the place it was written to, and all of those things, and then it will usually have an outline. It will have an outline of how the book is structured, so you can see where the verses that you're reading fit into the outline. It will do things also, like give you maybe key theological themes, or key literary themes, or things that are important to know. So as you are looking to do historical and literary context work, 
A study Bible is a great, great tool. Alternatively, you might have heard of a Bible dictionary. It often does the same thing, or an introduction uh, to the Bible will be a book that will have more background research about the books of the Bible. Typically, they're broken down either into Old Testament and New Testament, or sometimes into sections. For instance, the prophets might have their own introduction to the prophets. But these are all helpful tools. But now let's get back into Jeremiah. So verses 31 to 34 of chapter 4 are some of the most encouraging, hope-filled verses, not only in all of Jeremiah, but in the prophets, in the Old Testament, all together. So let's read these. Remember, Jeremiah has been promising. Chapters 30 and 31 are full of great promises. And then it comes to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." This is the first indication we get that there is a new covenant coming. There's this transformation that takes place where Jeremiah goes from being the prophet who's saying eventually people will come back here and it will be good again. Much of what is broken will be destroyed and will be restored. But now Jeremiah begins to say there's going to come a completely new way a better way that God relates to his people. And it won't be like the way that they know now. In this series through the Bible so far, we've looked at three big promises that God made, and we've looked at the three men that God made them with. The first was Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. Then was Moses. God made a covenant with Moses. used Moses to make a covenant with the people. And then there was David, who God made that covenant, that promise that one of his uh, line would always sit on the throne. With each man, he made a promise to do something through them that would build a nation here on earth. But now, God is promising to do something that doesn't just build an external people, where you can look at a person and say, well, they belong to this nation because of their heritage or their ethnicity or because they live within the borders of that nation. But now God is saying that I will make a new kind of promise with them. And it won't be a promise that has to come just through their leaders. The promises that God made were always arbitrated, given, made through other men. God says, now I'm going to make a promise directly with each person on their own. It won't have to come through another individual man, another human man. It will be a promise that I will make with each person, and I won't even make it outside of that person. 
It won't be something external, far off and distant from them. I will make a promise to each person, and that promise will be made within them. Another prophet, Ezekiel, looked around as, we did, as, as he was disgusted with the state of Israel's leadership, the people who were supposed to, arbit, uh, uh, to, to be the arbiters of God's covenant with his people. Every year, the ritual would take place for sacrifice where a priest, a leader of God's people, was supposed to come and to make propitiation, to, to, to do works, uh, to sacrifice so that the sins of the people might be forgiven. And Ezekiel looks around and said, I'm disgusted with how this is going. The people who are given to care for God's people instead care much more about themselves. And he said one day that practice would end. Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24 says, I will set up over them one shepherd. Here's this phrase again. My servant David. Again, this is hundreds of years after David lived. So it must mean something else. It must mean a different David. And he shall feed them. Shepherding is a big theme in the Bible that stands for servant leadership and care, tender care. We know that. It starts because David was a shepherd. And he shall feed them, this new David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I have spoken. So there begins to be something in the prophets where there is a promise that things will get better after a time. But there seems to be this shift where the prophets move from talking about the next couple of decades, the next hundred or so years, and they begin to talk about long and far away and distant into the future. They begin to talk about a new way that God will relate to his people grounded in the old way, still saying one like David. Again, we know from context, this can't be David. It's too late for David. David was just a man, but there will be one who will be like David, who will come, who will shepherd like David was a shepherd, who will reign like David reigned as king, but who will do it perfectly. He will do it in the place of God, as though God himself were doing it. And in the New Testament, we begin to see that these future prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah says that there was a new covenant coming. Listen to Jesus' words as he was celebrating the last meal that he was, would ever eat with his closest followers, and he begins to tell them what this new covenant is. This is Luke 22, starting at verse 14, and it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover is a Jewish meal that celebrates sort of the height of God's deliverance and his care for his people. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, 
this cup, this is key, is poured out for you. This, this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What Jesus was doing was unequivocally, absolutely would have reminded his disciples, and it should remind us of what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31, that there would be a new covenant that would come. And now Jesus is saying, I am handing you me as the coming and the guarantee, the inauguration of the new covenant. And then he says, it's a covenant in my blood. And what he means by that is under the old covenant, what Abraham, Moses, or David was powerless to do, Jesus came to do. So we ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says that this new covenant is one of his blood? Like I just said, under the old covenant system, every year the people would have to go through an elaborate ritual where they would slaughter animals and the sprinkling of blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. That's what God set up. But the way that it worked was there was one man, a high priest, who would come on behalf of the people, cleanse himself, and then go into a special place and make the sacrifice that was necessary for people to be forgiven from their sins. What Jesus is saying here is there is a new way that sacrifice will be made for the forgiveness of sins. No longer will it need to be one human man going into a special place to shed the blood of an animal, but Jesus will go to the cross and his blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins, but it won't be something that has to be done by somebody else once a year, every year, so that people might be forgiven. Jesus is going to go to the cross himself, and he's going to do it, and his blood, his shed blood, will be sufficient for the forgiveness of all sins for all time. Thus, one sacrifice, the book of Hebrews tells us, is necessary. And we don't have to. Jeremiah said that the covenant would be written on hearts. It, wasn't, it won't any longer need to be arbited through men, but through Jesus who becomes our great high priest. We no longer need a priest to access God. We no longer need one to stand for us, between us and God. But through Jesus, who is God, we can come directly to him. That's what Jeremiah is saying, is there will come a new covenant and Jesus is saying, I am the new covenant. That's what the New Testament is all about. The word testament and covenant mean the same thing. It's a new covenant. And we learn elsewhere in Scripture that this new covenant was foreshadowed. It was predicted. It was seen. And if we look back, we see it all over the, new Test- or the Old Testament. But Jesus came not to wipe away the old one, but to fulfill it. He became to become, he came to become the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all. This is our last message in the Old Testament. We transition next week in this series into an explanation of this new covenant. And so it's only fitting that we end this portion of God's work with people, of, his te- of the testimony of his goodness 
by looking at all the things that culminate in preparation for a new covenant. And it's only right and good that we ask, are you a member of the covenant family of God? The way that you become a member of this covenant, the way you receive this promise and this way of salvation from God is not by going through rituals. It's not by coming to anybody else. But you can go to God directly and say, God, I want to have this covenant with you. I want to have my sins forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus. Have you received the promise of the new covenant? Is it written on your heart? It can be, friends. It can be for anybody who wants it. Have you received it? Have you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and trusted in his shed blood? This is a new and a better way. And God offers it freely and gives it to every person. Let's pray. God, thank you for the new covenant by your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that there is a new way and that each one of us, not through anybody else, but through you, the great high priest, can come and have access to you and to life in you forever through the shed blood of Jesus. We pray that we would be people of the new covenant, testifying to your greatness, knowing you intimately. Thank you for the peace of having this written on our hearts. Make us a new covenant people. People who are wholly dependent on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We pray, we hope, and we trust in Him. Amen.